Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 172. With a veteran principal from New Jersey, USA, who has actively been writing about highly relevant solutions to problems in educational leadership since 2018, Dr. Michael Gaskell. Michael's second book, Leading Schools Through Trauma, was just published this September, and his first book, Micro Strategy Magic, last fall. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona, and like many of you listening, have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high-performance strategies that we can use to improve our productivity in our schools, our sports, and workplace environments. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their books, resources, and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher in the classroom or a student or in the corporate environment. When I first began presenting on the topic of stress learning in the brain in 2016, in those early days of learning about how the brain works and responds to stress, I started to receive messages from teachers around the country and the world with questions about how to handle students suffering from the damaging effects of trauma. Educators would attend the webinar presentations I was offering and their emails requesting help at the end of these presentations were urgent. Since starting this work, I've always replied personally to every single email that comes in, but the ones about trauma, I know I didn't have the best answers for, and I remember not knowing exactly how to answer these questions. I only knew from my viewpoint or experience working with behavioral students in my first year teaching what worked best for me back then, but I definitely lack the strategies that are needed more than ever in our schools today and understand now why being trauma informed is so important. I'm grateful that this podcast has not only given us a platform to what's new and relevant, timely and important as it relates to educational neuroscience and leadership, But where else would we all gain access to the leaders around the world working directly with the most innovative ideas in educational reform, productivity, and results? I want to thank you again for all who tune in and offer interview ideas and suggestions. The reach goes far beyond those early days when we would host those webinars. We're now into over 154 countries and remain in the top 100 charts for iTunes in the category of education how-to in many of these countries around the world. And this is only the beginning of our vision for this work, so we can now answer the questions that I know we all have with the leading experts in the field. Which brings us to our next guest, Dr. Michael Gaskell, who has a unique story because he's not only writing from his experience working in schools and offering trauma-informed solutions from what he sees working in his day-to-day world, but Dr. Gaskell takes it a step deeper, being a former student who was labeled himself as anxious, low-performing, hostile, and other terms that pointed to the characteristics of trauma. We spoke in episode number 170 with John Harmon just how important belief was for students learning their academics, like math, and for someone who failed math not once but twice in high school, this belief was not there. 
Something helped Dr. Gaskell to overcome his early academic challenges, helping him to reach levels that most educators envision in their mind, but few attain when he was presented with his dissertation for his educational doctorate. Let's meet Dr. Michael Gaskell and learn from his vast experience about how to be trauma-informed in today's schools. Welcome, Dr. Gaskell. I really enjoyed getting to know you through email before this interview, and I know that we're just one person away from knowing someone in this small world with you being from the town where my husband grew up in New Jersey. So it's so good to meet you in person and make this big world even smaller. Yeah, Paramus is that town on Seinfeld that has all the shopping malls. So that's what you know. That's what we know about Paramus, right? Oh, so true. There's a ton of malls in Paramus. Yeah. That's funny. Well, I, you know, it was, it, it's fun because it really does help when you're researching someone, when you know a little bit behind who they are. So that, that really helped to have this connection. And, and it really is a small world. When you start talking to people, you realize, oh, wow, you know, so-and-so and they know you. And it's, it's just wild, isn't it? It's, it's amazing. It's great to meet you in person uh, after all those emails, Andrea. Definitely, definitely. Well, this is going to be fun, even though it's a uh, very serious and much needed topic. But I think that uh, we're going to we're going to make put put some spins on it to make this really useful and implementable for people. So let's just get to that. My first I always do like an intro question that's not about your book, just to orient people to you. And you tell a story at the beginning of your most recent book that just came out about your personal experience of struggle. And I know many children are dealing with this today, especially the past few years. But what do you think it was that made a difference for you? Was there something that stuck out in your mind as a turning point? Or did you do something, anything different that put you on a new trajectory from, you know, failing math twice in high school to look at you now? What do you think it was that made this shift for you? Yeah, you know, what I didn't say in my story was that I also fought through the social challenges of a child with a club foot, a visible physical difference in the size and shape of my leg. And kids can be hard on someone who doesn't fit that image of a person they want to hang out with. So there are really two things that stick out. The first thing is I had to develop the social aptitude to distract others away from that weakness that I couldn't hide. Um, and I did this through humor and ironically speed. I ran a 40 yard dash in under 4.7 seconds in high school. That's fast and didn't fit the picture of a kid with a, a handicap. Uh, so talk about a great distractor. That was point number one. And then point number two, I would have to say is, uh, I had a, was a re relationship to living in what I call the Charlie Brown era. And what I mean by that is, you know the time when adults were almost non-existent that you couldn't even understand them when you watched an episode. And parents, they said, I don't care as long as you're home for dinner. <laughs> that was that was a generation I grew up in. Yeah. I had to fight early and often um, on my own many times. Now, I don't suggest we go back to that non-supervision era, by the way, but we can set up the structures for kids to take risks in a safer environment uh, with the motivation to push up just a little bit harder. And my leg, well, if a kid with a physical disability can over outrun everyone else, he starts to believe he can really accomplish anything. Uh, so I've always punched above my weight since. This too uh, can be crafted in that like form of small wins that I refer to in the book as cumulative in nature. 
Wow. Wow. Well, that brings it to a whole new perspective because it brings belief back in here. And we've just been talking about belief and how important that is for success and future success. And so I'm going to get right into some questions for your book and, and how I've outlined this. I just go through an introduction to trauma, how we recognize trauma, and then maybe how we implement and become trauma informed. That's that's kind of how I've outlined the questions for you. Since many of us who were trained to work in today's classrooms were not trained in the importance of understanding simple neuroscience, and most of us don't have a background in psychology, let alone trauma. And I like how you've taken the important research and tied it to your book right from the beginning with that study of Warner and Smith from 2001, where they tracked individuals from childhood to middle age, demonstrating how they responded to trauma in their life. But what do you think would be something we should all know about if we have a student who appears to be going nowhere what would you tell teachers who are working in your classrooms about the importance of understanding these protective factors to make an impact that we might not see right away? Yeah, I mean, the study illustrates an opportunity. I mean, we have to recognize that kids are more than what they show up with, and it's not a waste of time to get to know your kids. In fact, this is a critical investment. You asked me earlier about what got out of my what I got out of my own challenges, right? What's as important as what we can show teachers I tell the story of a boy who was evaluated and had all those symptoms and asked teachers in a PD activity what predictions they might make for this young, hostile, developmentally delayed child. They're not good predictions. When I reveal that that was me, they're always shocked. They're always shocked. It's in this moment that I capture their attention. Don't ever give up on any child ever. Someone, they didn't give up on me. And I refer also to one other great story that I reference in the book, uh, letters from Teddy Roy and and. This is uh, an answer to what can be accomplished in a year, uh, just a short year. And this true story, a highly at-risk child is at the December holidays, uh, recognized for the first time by his teacher as more than just an unpleasant distraction or burden in her class. And with belief and determination, he ultimately becomes a doctor and his story is laid out in this like profound path, all founded by one teacher's belief in him. And it only did it in six months. So th that can be accomplished. Wow. I think back to my class of 30 students, and I've always, throughout all this time, they've always inspired me just to keep going and look for those students that you see that drive for, and they show up all the time. They're easy to spot. I actually have a lot of young people reach out to me as I've been doing this work, you know, hey, what suggestions would you have for me? You give them one or two tips and they skyrocket. I just love watching it. So that's, I, I love your story. Yeah, it's, it's, it's inspiring just to, to let that ride. Yeah, definitely. Well, you have a three-step approach um, that, that you offer for teaching trauma in your schools. And I've, I've only looked at like a couple of books, Ross Green's Lost at School, where they say that kids with social, emotional and behavior challenges lack important thinking skills. Or there was Onward that talked about cultivating emotional resilience in educators by Elena Aguilar. And so I just wonder what comes first, because her book focused on educators and instilling self-awareness, knowing our emotions, our identity. What comes first, though, the student's well-being or an educator's well-being to make a difference? 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. I'm going to sound selfish here, but I think it's got to start with the educator. And here's why. You need to take care of yourself before you can take care of someone else. And it's sort of like the oxygen mask concept on an airplane. Like, you know, you give yourself the oxygen and then hand it off. Same idea. They have to be founded in this ability to control and manage and self-regulate their own emotions. And then they'll be able to give that child the same kind of support. So have you seen a change in supporting teachers with their own well-being? Because when I was teaching, it was like a race to see who could stay the latest at the school, work the hardest. Um, there just was not that support towards well-being. There was no like, hey, let's go for a walk or a run at lunch um, for our own mental health. There was none of that. Has there been a shift over the years, do you think? Ironically, I would say there's a convergence of this challenge coming out of a post-pandemic world where it just seems like, you know, the political landscape has changed and there's all these dynamics that we're dealing with. At the same time, there is a recognition that, hey, we got to slow things down a little and take care of ourselves. Take that five-minute walk. Focus on your breathing. Think about ways to manage how you're taking care of yourself. So I think there's more recognition, but we as leaders in schools have a responsibility to insist on teachers taking advantage of those. I'll give you one quick example. Some of my teachers are on email all weekend and I say to them, take the weekend challenge. What's the weekend challenge? You stay off your email, not the whole weekend, one full day, email, phones, computers, everything. When you come back to school on Monday, enter into a lottery. I took the weekend challenge. And then if you win the lottery, you get a duty coverage off. And teachers oh. love stuff like that. That's a freebie that they love. And it also reinforces to them that I care about your well-being and you should too. Oh, definitely. And I just wonder like another step, another layer here, because some of the districts I've been working with have done this and, and I just loved it. It's having each other's back. So knowing when one teacher isn't feeling right to say, go home and we'll cover you. Do you guys do that in your Absolutely. District? Love yeah. it. You got to take care of yourself first, as I said earlier, and that starts with the leadership. So if someone's having a bad day and we can cover it, we, we join each other in forces. We're, we're a big family here. That's what we are first. And then we teach kids. And teaching kids is a very important part of our whole process, but we can't do that right unless we're making sure that we're in a good place ourselves. Oh, I love to hear this. Good, good stuff. So in the training that I'm receiving now, Dr. Gaskell, I'm in this year long neuroscience certification program. I'm on the tail end of it. And we've just covered some sessions to help us to understand how trauma impacts people in different ways and strategies that might help one student would set off another student's buttons. Where do we even begin with being trauma informed in today's classrooms? Yeah, it's amazing because when you're dealing with all these things and you, you know, you have to remember that, you know, teachers are not trained counselors uh, and yet they're in the throes, they're in the trenches managing this. It seems overwhelming, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's the whole point of a book like mine. You can't know everything or be an expert and also meet curricular demands, stay on top of greeting and, and more. Rather implement something I call stacking. And uh, let's say, for instance, you try six or seven micro interventions and let's say three or four of them work. Who cares about the three that didn't work? The fact that three or four did means you stack these interventions in a way that cumulatively made a difference in a child's life. And then you throw the other three out. I, again, that's a very motivating and inspiring way. Teachers are type A personalities by nature. So they need to know that if they get three out of six, they actually won. That's batting 500 in baseball, by the way. So it's fine. 
you, you hit three or four things that work for that kid. And then that's what you focus on. Now, how do you assess that what you're doing is making a difference? Because I did a lot of things with my students that I think made a difference, but I didn't see that difference. So how are you assessing them? Yeah, and, and we gotta be careful, right? Because the word assess is so dull. Um, this right. has the potential of sounding like, like not an exciting thing. Yet the way to assess students' progress is both fun and low on student stress if you do it the right way. A key for measuring a traumatized student's progress and motivating them to move to the next level is what I call in the book gamification. Uh, so gamification is this concept where you can use online resources in particular. And many teachers and non-educators alike have heard of resources like Kahoot and Nearpod and Paradac, where they're, they're basically having competition-based and structured organized activities where students are allowed to respond. Well, students don't feel like that's an assessment. They just feel like it's an engaging part of a fun activity. And when the teacher's collecting these responses, the kid doesn't know that they're collecting these responses in such an obvious way. And then they can catalog them. And in the book, I go into detail about how to export this data, how to track it. And then on the other end of this, how to show kids their progress and that they are moving up this remarkably imperfect progress line. That's actually like a stock market chart. It's, it's, it's uneven, but it's moving in the right direction. And that's also motivating, inspiring for kids. Very helpful. Definitely. And um, Going into how important our mindset is, because I know that it's important for ourselves and for our students, uh, for teaching, for coaching, but you have a study that backs this up with science. Can you explain the Pygmalion effect and why what we think about our students matters so much? Yeah, so this is a study that in present day world, we could never do ethically, by the way. It's about 50 years old. It was done in the 60s. And it's amazing because what they did was they studied these kids and they said to the teachers, look, we have this one cohort of kids and they're all advanced kids. So we just want you to be aware of that when you're teaching them. And then with this other group of kids, they said, look, just so you know, these kids have some challenges, some learning gaps, they're going to need some help. What the teachers didn't really know was the truth was these kids were all about average to even slightly above average performing kids. And yet at the end of this study, what they found was that the teachers teaching the kids who they thought were advanced, these kids' outcomes mimic those of gifted kids. And these were average kids. And then on the other hand, the kids who were considered challenged kids didn't perform so well. So again, there's an ethical issue in this today. So we're not gonna do this kind of study, but it's a great reference point to say, look, a lot of what we communicate even you know, subconsciously to kids subliminally is powerful and in how we interact with them and, and, and the standard we hold for them. So the more we push that standard higher, and I use the example of myself at the beginning of the book, the more that that kid begins to believe in themselves and they perform and, and exceed their expectations. Because we really feel it when someone believes in us and, you know, wants to drive us forward versus, ah, I'm not going to spend the time with you because I don't think you're going to get it anyway. Right. We feel that it's, as a person. it's really powerful. Another really quick study that I reference in the book is about delivering the news. And this concept is that you have uh, someone who's delivering negative news in a nurturing, supportive way versus someone who's giving positive news in a very neutral kind of bland way. 
And believe it or not, the people who got the negative news in a very supportive, nurturing way said they felt better about the interaction than the people who just got this bland positive. So that just goes to show you that even when you're trying to move a kid along and you're having concerns, if you do it the right way and you balance it with support and nurture, they're going to be very motivated and, and, and try to exceed expectations. I've definitely heard that with regards to doctors giving somebody a cancer diagnosis, how they say it really matters. And, you know, we didn't, they didn't have that sort of training, you know, 25 years ago, but now they know that the tone of their voice and how they're looking at you and showing empathy, how it matters for that person's healing and how they get over that. Yeah, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Totally true. So going into treating trauma, so resources, tools, and teacher sensitivity. So I think back to my days of teaching um, when I had this assignment of 30 behavioral students, and it was pretty, pretty uh, traumatic for me. Uh, you know, they were all behavioral and behind me when I was trying to teach a lesson, there were chalk brushes flying and I would turn around and then they'd be like pretending to sit and do their work. It was, it was frustrating. But if I came to you after school, cause I just had this buzzer on the wall and I would sometimes press it and go, someone come help me. These kids are crazy. But if I had, you were my principal and I came down and I said, you know, listen, these kids are insane. I don't know what's wrong with them. You know, of course, we didn't have the training in in how to handle behavior back then. We didn't have um, Bruce Perry's upside down triangle. So we, we didn't know about how it matters, how I'm regulated. But I come to you as a first year teacher, completely stressed out. What would you tell me on how I can better connect and teach my students? Yeah, I think you have to get them to first take a, a step back. I mean, remember that, again, they're somewhat uh, facing duress and anxiety themselves. So we've got to get them somewhat centered. And I've established the importance of taking that step back. Let's just recenter ourselves. Let's keep this all in perspective. You're not the first teacher that had to deal with difficult children. You won't be the last. And this is not the last difficult child, but you can learn and get better at it. And then you just start to teach them how to develop and build relationships with these kids and sometimes they can't believe that that can happen you mean I, that kid that kid doesn't like me so you start to try things you do things like the one sentence intervention which i talk about in the book and that's the idea that if you say one thing positive and, and authentic by the way it's got to be real for a, a span of two weeks you start to shift the kid's perspective of you it doesn't happen overnight i talk a lot about quick interventions those things that you can do in a few minutes in many instances, because we don't have the time. But this is one of those things where if you're dealing with this all year long, you've got to invest, you know, 10 days into this. And over time, that'll shift. And take time to know what's what's going on behind the scene. You know, if you see a kid and they walk in and they have uh, really great sneakers on that day, hey, I really like your sneakers. Where'd you get those? And they may just ignore you the first day. They may ignore you the third day. But usually by about the seventh or eighth or ninth day, you're going to start to get a response back because they're going to believe it. Unfortunately, kids with challenges are used to adults giving up on them because it's easier for us. So if we don't give up on them, they start to believe, oh, this person actually cares about me. It just takes more time. So the other thing I'd reference is something I call the ABCs, which is antecedent behavior consequence. If you get teachers to think very clinically about this, it helps them to take a, that step back I talked about. Antecedent is what was happening before. You don't know necessarily. They come in your room, they might have had left an argument with uh, a parent who's not really treating them that well. A behavior is the actual action. And then what's the consequence? And, and by consequence, I don't necessarily mean negative. What I mean is, is how are we going to 
help that child learn that they don't have to do this every time or that they have other options. Some of that's about self-regulation. And then, of course, I always go back to, to the teacher and say, look under the hood. There's more here than just their behavior. There's so much behind this that we have to learn to understand. And again, they're not trained counselors. They're new teachers. So they just need to hear that. And then some quick examples of, of ways to identify that to get started. Well, that kind of answered my next question of what we should keep in mind when teaching children who've been exposed to trauma, your ABC, because, you know, if we have not ever experienced this and and I've only just recently with my neuroscience class learned how someone could deal with something that I've said in a completely different way. And, you know, they react in a way that you're going, what happened? What did I do? So, you know, thinking about what happened before, you know, thinking about Dr. Bruce Perry's, you know, not what not what's wrong with them, but what happened to them. So, like, you know, thinking about your ABC, what should we all know when dealing with children who have behavior? What should we think about? So I, I get a lot into like charting this kind of behavior and creating what I call baselines. So this is really hard to do because what you need to do is you need to establish, okay, this kid got up and shouted out 17 times in this class. That's obviously too many. So the question you ask the teacher is, are you looking for perfection? Because that's impossible. Or are you looking for a decrease and a significant decrease? And then you can chart this. And that's sort of, you know, identifying the behavior and then saying to the kid, hey, did you know that you were out of your seat 17 times shouting? And a lot of times they say, what? No, I, I did it like three times. Consciously, they're not aware of it. Bringing it to their conscious level can often help the most traumatized or challenged kid because then you start to give them an incentive. Tell you what, what if we cut that in half or cut it down to six a period? So you're not asking them to be perfect. You just want to improve and you're glad to see that improvement. And they get an incentive out of that. They get you know an extra five minutes on a Friday afternoon. Kids don't need big things to feel rewarded, by the way. I call this the $6 t-shirt concept. You know, you go to a, an activity or an event and people are shooting out of those things, uh, those $6 t-shirts, and you wouldn't buy that at Walmart. But people are going crazy for these things because it's the psychology of it, right? So we get the kid incentivized. We get them motivated to lower that behavior. And then we reinforce the positive behavior. And we do that by charting it, not just saying, be quiet, because we're not now measuring it. We're just managing this on emotions. And that just doesn't work. If we back off of our emotions, treat it clinically, we can actually start to help the kid. Very helpful. Definitely. And what about your I am more than that program? I've seen similar programs within education, but in reading your book, it looked different, especially when it comes from a student uncovering their identity and increasing their self-awareness, which is what we're trying to do with social emotional learning. Can you explain this program and why it's important for us to all know who we are at our very core? Yeah, and I, I just got to say a really quick story about the first time this happened to really illustrate that point. So we have this program and we bring these high school kids down to my middle school. And these high school kids were often bullied for whatever reason. They had uh, racial differences. They had uh, sexual orientation differences. They had physical uh, appearances like the ones I described earlier that they were up against. And kids are pretty brutal, especially in middle school. So this kid, he comes in and he had just gone to college for the first time. He was a freshman at Rutgers University, which is a local university. And he sits down on the stage and he says to the kids, um, I love going to Rutgers. It's a great school. And the kids go crazy because they're Rutgers fans. And then he says, I love pizza. So of course, every kid gets even crazier. I love Xbox or whatever the great video game is. And they go nuts. And then he says to them, and I'm gay. 
and there is dead silence. And he paused that. I think he did it on purpose because he was so smart. Then he says, and I tell you that last thing because I'm so much more than just that. And that's an important thing to understand. There's layers to who we are. There's pieces to who we are. And we're not just that one thing that you may choose to attack and, and certainly, you know, you know, focus on. We've got all, kids have all these other variables about them. It's a very powerful program. And what happens after this program, and we always have, this is always the most popular program every year and it's free. I mean, we bring high school kids and we're not paying for this except for the uh, pizza that we get the kids, of course. And then they, the high school kids, and then they meet with kids. And I walked into a session uh, and I said, how's it going? And they're like, the kids are in middle school crying. This is the first time I realized somebody was just like me. And I, and, and I feel like I have hope now. So there's this very inspiring sort of macro way of managing trauma with programs like this, which you need to balance with the micro things. And I talk a little bit about that in the book as well. Definitely. That is very powerful because I know uh, how important it is even for educators to do that. You know, we're more than just a teacher walking into the school. Who are we? How do we feel connected to our school, our students and our community? Thinking about that from a teacher's point of view as well, not just the students. So I loved seeing that in the book. Thank you. Um, what about curiosity? How can curiosity be used as a success tool? Yeah, so this is interesting because you know you might not think of something like this in a book like this about trauma. So I love this one sentence. It really kind of captures it. A curious person can't at the same time be anxious. Think about that. If you're ever probing or curious or looking into something, you're fascinated about something or you're on vacation and you're looking at something, not to be vacation, you're driving by something, you see something really interesting. You know, it's so important to remember that the parts of our brain that tap into curiosity are directly blocking out and interfering with those things that create anxiety. So curiosity is a very therapeutic thing. And, you know, scientists and researchers are really just starting to make some more noise about this, which I'm glad to see because what a perfect environment. School is a place where curiosity can be bred, right? And exploration and, and inquiry are really at the threshold of a calm and thought-provoked demeanor. Think about it. Have you ever been curious? Again, as I said, at the same time you've been anxious. anxious I can't think of a time. And so there's actually science behind that too. Oh, that's powerful and interesting because there's another time something like that has happened. It happens with my daughter all the time. There's that feeling of excitement and anxious are uh, they feel the same for for a kid you know yep. when she's going to her her like gymnastics for the first time or something there's that feeling of oh i'm so excited and i'm also nervous and i try to explain to her that 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 emotion feels the same that a positive excitement of you know doing something new feels the same as being anxious and just for her to understand and recognize and work through that but I love that idea of the fact that you can't be curious and anxious at the same time. That's a good solution yeah. tool. I love it. So Absolutely. let's bring some of these ideas now into implementation and training. So in a world that's forever changing, it's crucial not to overlook the trauma like you identify at the macro level. So everything we all went through during the pandemic to the micro, like an unexpected death of a family member, 
How do you use surveys to identify your faculty's concerns, maybe uh, helping them to have a voice for the training that they're receiving? Because I know having a voice is so important for what you're actually bringing into the school. Yeah, this is great because survey is an excellent instrument to gauge really valuable information that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise get from them. You may remember, I'm, I might be a nice guy, but I'm still the boss. I'm still the principal. And they're not always going to come out and, and reveal some of their most significant concerns or who it's coming from. So survey gives voice to those in the trenches, and that's our teachers. And it empowers them in ways that helps move your school. That's really the bottom line, moves kids, moves your school climate, everything. Surveys reveal the truth behind the challenges and testify to what really needs to be managed. That's that very authentic anonymous response you get. Through the trends and patterns that emerge in these survey responses, you can really begin to make changes. And when I show them that I'm making changes based on that response, they're all in. They're all in and the climate's there. Got it. And there's nothing worse, because I know this, than going to your teachers and saying, this is what we're going to be doing. And they didn't have a voice, right? Yeah, you got it. Does it go over well? And even bringing in the voice of the students, do you do that? Do you give the students a voice for for things so that they uh, feel a part of the school? We do. We just did that uh, this year uh, because they're now carrying Chromebooks with them. We never allowed backpacks. And we got to the point, we were allowing like handbags and, and tote bags, but not uh, drawstring bags, but not backpacks. And I was always worried about their weight, but we talked a lot about organization and reinforcing that at home. So we work with kids individually if there's too much weight in their backpack, but they were allowed to vote. Yes, I want to carry a backpack in school. I've got too many. I got a, cape, a cord now, a, a, you know, a, a device and all my books. So it made sense to allow that choice. And they felt like they were heard. Yeah. Yeah, that, I definitely I saw that in one of the one of the beginning trainings that I went to with this work. Uh, there was two students that were chosen to represent one district, and they participated and gave the most uh, in depth feedback that was mind boggling that we couldn't see uh, in, in our generation. So I, I love hearing that you're giving them a voice. Yeah, actually, really quick anecdote to that. One day I decided to follow a student because I had heard of a principal who had done this. And I was amazed at how harried their schedule was, how much I was stay, having to stay focused, how important it was, how frustrating it was to at times follow so many rules. And so that gave me some perspective. And I wrote a letter to my daughters and shared it with the uh, faculty. And they said, well, I never thought of this. you know." And I said, neither did I. And then I had teachers try that. They followed students too. So when we start to walk in their shoes, we can really begin to appreciate it and then also help them even more. Definitely. Oh, this is good. This is really good. What about ed camps for your faculty meetings? Because I remember sitting in my meetings in a circle and that's when I would drift off and start reading other books and think about, you know, this is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? So how have you taken those meetings out of those rooms and, and made them more um, impactful? Yeah, think about the lack of logic. What do we do? We have a faculty meeting at the end of the day when people are at their lowest point in like their circadian rhythm and their focus and they're ready to take a nap. And, and the principal stands up there and drones on. And I hated doing this. And I always knew I needed to make a change. So I brought in EdCamps. These are great because you know, so much like children who need more choice to feel like they have control over their lives, especially traumatized kids, we're empowering teachers to both run and participate in option-based professional development selections. Of course, there needs to be an outcome, but there's a better outcome for teachers than when 
they get to focus on what they're interested in. And I mean, they, they do get to when they're interested in it and have chosen for helping kids. Now, imagine an ed camp, right? So an ed camp is the basic premise is that they're picking their activity and then they're often turnkeying or leading it. So these are, you can imagine, and they can drop in and out of these sessions and learn from each other. So these are interactive, buzzing, exciting events, much like a conference um, that brings faculty meetings alive. And that's where professional development truly happens. Faculty leave these meetings energized. They don't have that. I'm ready to take a nap. I can't believe that guy just wasted 40 minutes of my life. I'll never get back. And they're ready to they're ready to move on uh, with that energy and that drive to help kids. And that's how you want teachers leaving the building. Yeah, and it's interesting that you do this off site because I once heard that when you're setting goals, you know, at the end of the year, when it's time to reset your goals for the next year, I heard that the most impactful way to do this is not in your home, is to go somewhere else and do it. Mm. So I, yep. I love, you know, the connection there of not being on your school site, going somewhere else to do this learning where you're fresh, new ideas, new things come up. Yeah, ed camps are, are great opportunities to to uh, get outside of your space and try new things. Definitely. Well, let's think now about some actionable ideas that we can implement right away. What would, would be some important takeaways that we can all use right away? I think the main idea is that people should take away with is that one has no one has time to implement a 40 minute adjustment or a day long intervention for that matter. We have a few minutes here or there. So the, the interventions I suggest in the book are designed to impact in this way. These include things like breathing exercises that take five minutes, coffee house with uh, distractions, which I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, one sentence interventions, which I mentioned earlier, and teacher greetings at the door. Teacher greetings at the door were tested in a study with uh, students with behavioral challenges. So you're talking about kids who were likely traumatized. And simply changing one thing, greeting kids at the door, increased their focus from 45 to 72 percent. One little thing, just a greeting at the door. So that that obviously works. Implementing the right um uh, praise to criticism ratio, and I, I know that's probably something we're going to hit on later, um, helping kids understand the impact of social media on their lives. I've even shown evidence about how to manage that. There was a University of Buffalo study that showed that when we are engaged negatively, which we most often are, unfortunately, on social media, we become less intelligent. That's because we start to tap our primal defense mechanisms and not that higher order thinking. That's powerful. When we make kids aware of that, they can really begin to address their behavior and issues. So I wanna talk a little bit about um, something I call coffee house chatter. And this is the idea that when we go to a coffee house, there's actually this ideal decibel sound. So bear with me, I'm gonna get a little geeky with you here. There's this tonal sound that enters our ears and therefore our, our brain pathways that's this distracted enough thing that it's taking us away from some of those exterior distractions like your cell phone and getting you to focus on more important things. So I actually call this a distracted focus because it's distracting you away from the things you don't want to bother you and, and sending you into this focus zone that allows you to really concentrate. Now, the reason I talk about this is well, what the heck are we gonna do with coffee house sounds in a classroom? Well, you can go to YouTube and just like you see those meditation apps that or YouTube that play four hours worth of meditation or whatever, you can do the same thing with coffee house sounds. And you have a kid, pretty much every kid either has a one-to-one -one device nowadays or a cell phone and they can plug their headphones in 
and do their independent work and really get focused. It takes about five minutes for the typical person to get into the zone. So maybe it takes six or seven for a more challenged kid or a traumatized kid. And that's okay because once they're in that zone, they've got another 30, 35 minutes in a typical class and they can really get focused. Now, the reason that's so important is productivity is one of those things that makes us feel really good about ourselves. Just think about it. If you've had a really great day where you've accomplished a lot and most traumatized kids almost never feel that. So you start tipping the, the balance for them and getting them to find ways and tools to regulate that. They're going to start feeling better about themselves. So it's little things like that. I just wanted to throw out there. Definitely. And then what about some other research? I know that you mentioned in your book, John Gottman's research, um, and then the the th the ratio of positivity to negativity. Can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, so this is kind of cool because John Gottman researched successful long-term marriages. So we do tie this into school, so bear with me. And discovered that the average praise to criticism ratio was the reverse of unsuccessful marriages. That is, these couples consciously implemented three times as many positive comments and authentic ones, by the way, they were real, as they did negative ones to their partner. And these were long-term sustaining and thriving marriages. So that same thing has been shown to be successfully applied to classrooms. PBSAS and PBIS and these kinds of ideologies all work very well with these theories and has made a profound effect on traumatized and behaviorally challenged children. We talked a little bit earlier about delivery of information. And if you think about it, if you kids that are traumatized or they have behavior challenges, they're used to hearing negative feedback far more because it's just easy to give them negative feedback. If we flip that script and it give you the smallest thing that can be a, a, a positive, authentic phrase. Like I really like the way that you came in on time today. So it's the idea, it's, you know, so it's, it's this idea that kids are able to hear authentically from an adult and they start to believe it themselves and that's self-perpetuating. It helps them to start to self-regulate their own belief in themselves uh, in ways that really helps them think positively. And that doesn't happen often for a traumatized child. It's interesting because, you know, you think about it when you've had a performance review and you get told all the things that you're great at. And then the thing you take away or remember <laughs> is that when you, you know, oh, man, they said this and, and that's all you take away. So it's different for a traumatized child. I never really thought about that. So they even more so would focus on the negative. Very critical to think about that balance for that very reason. Yeah. Wow. wow. Well, Michael, I know that, that we've really gone deep into this. I think uh, as a new teacher, I understand if I was to go back to my classroom, I'd have a better handle on what to do with those 30 behavioral children. And I wouldn't come screaming down to the office and push the button. You've, you've given us some ideas on how to recognize um, how to implement some new ideas, things that we can do right away. I want to thank you so much for taking the time for this deep dive into your most recent book, Leading Schools Through Trauma. For those who want to get a copy and explore the tools and resources, I've put a link in the show notes, but is there any other places that people can follow you and what else do you want people to know about your work? Yeah, absolutely. So Twitter, Gaskell M. Gaskell. I don't know why my name's twice in there. It just was the one I got. Gaskell M. Gaskell. My, I have a website, mikesmicrominute.com. And you can also find me on LinkedIn at Mike, Michael Gaskell.
Wonderful. I'll put all those in the show notes. And I want to thank you so much for your time, resources, and for sharing everything with us here. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Andrea. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com. 